Good, thank you. That does it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts now. Thursday, which you know, I call Friday Eve. Actually, I thought it was Friday. I have said all week, this felt like a really long week. I said it on Monday. Um, and the reason it feels like a long week is that we are jam-packed with a lot of material. Uh, first and foremost, this crazy manhunt that is ongoing in Tennessee. So we're starting to learn a lot more about this guy, Sean Williams, who's out on the run somewhere, don't know where, 22 days now, uh, but he's really bad and super dangerous. And somehow he has all these looks. He is a Houdini. He got out of leg irons and cuffs and a belly chain and was somehow able to elude two guards in a small transport van, like, you know, one of those transit vans, and bust out the back window on the way to court and make a break for it without them even knowing. <laughs> they got to the courthouse and they're like, where's the inmate? Uh, dunno. So the, the thing that's kind of, I mean, listen, there's a lot of disturbing aspects to this, but the thing that's really becoming even more disturbing is the Sean Williams lair. The apartment. He might look like a, a thug here in the inmate and the social posts, but he lived a, a fancy life in those downtown towers. And his apartment was beautiful and expensive. And he had a garage like Jerry Seinfeld, like, you know, cars everywhere and a swing for parties. And it was the kind of place where you'd go and think you were lucky if you had an invitation. The problem is... Police think 52 women, at least, went there, were drugged, and raped on tape. Many of them not even knowing it. Some of them even children. So this is the kind of guy we're talking about. Lest you think, okay, just another manhunt. No, that kind of guy is out there. And there's drugs involved, and there are guns involved, and there's porn involved. So he kind of crosses all the inmate categories. Don't even know what kind of seg he goes into, because he might be all of those, right? So now we have a tenant who's giving us the inside scoop on what it was like inside that apartment, and what it was like inside that building, and what kind of people were there, and parties were there, and what it was like the day a woman fell or was pushed from up in one of those apartment uh, windows, five stories up. You're going to hear all of that tonight. It's an exclusive. We're actually live on the ground outside of that building, and we have a lot more details about this Sean Williams and the lifestyle. Also, you're going to see for the first time tonight Sean Williams being attacked himself. Something wasn't going right with some of those party guests, and you're going to see what happened in an elevator. That's all coming up. Also, in the Caitlin Armstrong murder trial, just when we think things are going to get maybe quieter or boringer, or, you know, maybe we'll have like a, a cell phone analyst on the stand. No. This time, it's like a cop show and a spy novel, all in one day. Uh, you are going to freak out when you hear about the interrogation of Caitlin Armstrong. I always love this so much. Like, the whole battle of, like, Miranda. Should you Mirandize someone? If you don't Mirandize someone, can you use what they say? Oh boy, is there ever a story that played out in the interrogation room. And it starts with, you're free to leave. Except she had cuffs on at one point. 
I would just leave you with that to contemplate what that means legally. But uh, lots of cool stuff from the person who was actually doing the interrogation, what Caitlin said during the interrogation, what she wouldn't say, how many times she asked for a lawyer. Uh, you know the drill. You guys are true crime fans. But then there's also the business of the U.S. Marshal. This is where the spy novel comes in. The U.S. Marshal that got on the plane and flew to Costa Rica, I want that job, um, the moment that he came in contact with Caitlin Armstrong, it's mind-blowing and kind of accidental, super-duper lucky, and I'm just going to leave it with this. If you spend over $6,000 on plastic surgery, you should get your money's worth, and I don't think she did. I'm going to tell you why and all the things that the marshal saw and how they actually did the takedown. That's coming. And then the, you know, losing um, a loved one, whether it's your, your mom or your dad or a sibling or a child or, or maybe like a really good friend, that's a really hard part of life. Dealing with what to do afterwards, like whether you cremate or, or have a burial or what you do with the, um, with the ashes, those are all really hard decisions. I think we all have friends, right, who, who might keep the ashes on the mantle. I mean, these are very special artifacts of life, you know. And so... Uh, Finding out that you got sand and you didn't get ashes would be overwhelming. Insult to injury on top of all the other emotions. And then finding out that the place where you took your loved one, like that place right there, instead of doing what they were supposed to do, offering dignity and death, preparing the body for whatever funeral, instead they stacked the bodies and left them in a pile. I'm not just talking a few. I'm talking almost 200 for years and years. You're going to hear the rest of that story in just a moment. Let's start, though, with Sean Williams. Okay, so there are dozens of women and children who allegedly have been raped. And when it comes to the children, the charges are already on the mat for this guy, okay? Uh, production of child pornography, child rape, sexual exploitation of a minor, and sexual battery against kids, one of them younger than... Two. You heard me. Two years old. So we're talking about a potential pedophile on the run. We're talking about a potential mass serial rapist on the run and a potential serial pornographer on the run. The M.O., according to police, is that he would drug his victims in his fancy apartment or fancy garage where he held these fancy parties with a swing and when they were out cold, he'd then start rolling tape and doing to them whatever he wanted, and then keeping all that evidence on all of the digital devices they seized. So no surprise that he's got mug shots. Problem is, is that he's got a lot of them, and he looks different in all of them. So it's hard to track a guy who is this elusive, can have so many looks, and is somehow able to elude the authorities by doffing cuffs, leg irons, and a belly chain and breaking out the back of a transit van on the way to court without your two guards seeing it or hearing it or noticing it for miles. What? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Inside job with maybe a little bit of outside help? Because that is what authorities are looking into. Did he have inside job help? from the jailers? Did he have outside job help from the roadway and beyond? Because it's been 22 days now. It's nuts. All of this happening in Greenville, Tennessee. Um, he got out October 18th, so it's been a while, right? October 18th. The digital files included like photos and videos of all of these rapes happening. 
some of those women had no idea, and the police actually had to come knocking. They had to call. They used the facial identity uh, software to figure out who are the women who are being victimized, who don't even know it. Then they'd have to actually track the women and call them. Just imagine getting that call. I've been what? By who? And when? That's what happened in this case. News Nation's Brooke Schaefer is live on the ground in Johnson City, Tennessee right now. Brooke, this, this story just has so much to it. I want to start with where you are right now in front of that very upscale building. You were able to talk to a former tenant, not just of the building, a tenant of Sean Williams because he was wealthy enough to own multiple apartments and then rent them out to renters. So you had a chance to speak to one of them. Tell me everything you learned. Yeah, so Sean Williams was her landlord. She told me that he had a bit of a reputation in this town and not a good one. She said that he was known for being a little odd, a little socially awkward even. But even beyond that, Sean Williams, she said, was known for throwing big parties. He would throw these parties in that building just behind me on the top floor. But this wasn't just any party. These were parties filled with drugs and alcohol. Williams, like you said, is alleged to have drugged and raped several women at these parties. So I asked her about them because she was living in the building as all of this was happening. Here's what she told me. He was a guy known for throwing big parties. Yes. Did you ever see these parties? And what were they like? I never went up there, but he would post them on social media. He'd open up the refrigerator and have it full of alcohol. And then he would go into the bathroom and said, this is the powder room. And of course, there was cocaine. I never went up there. Could you hear it, though? Could you hear the parties at night? Yes, because people were up and down on the elevator. You know, people would use pee in the elevator. I mean, women would run onto our floor. People would knock on our doors trying to find the party. Just the way he would look at young women. And he was just, he was just different. He was very odd. He was very odd. Yeah. There was times when he would come down to try to fix something in my um, condo, and he shook the whole entire time. And I was like, okay, something's not right. And she told me that these parties were always happening. And she said for the most part, she noticed that it was young women who were going and attending these parties. Ashley? I just wonder how many of them have no idea that they might be on those tapes in that digital um, you know, trove that they found. Brooke, the, um, the woman we interviewed this week, Michaela Evans, um, she fell five stories to the concrete below. She believes she might have been pushed by this man uh, for having maybe resisted him when she was uh, starting to feel the influences. She survived, broke nearly every single bone in her body. It's a, it's a miraculous survival story. But the woman you spoke to today actually saw Michaela on the sidewalk. Walk me through what she witnessed. Yeah, I started asking her about this. I said, you know, Ashley spoke with a woman yesterday. This is what she claims. Immediately, she knew exactly what I was talking about. She said, yeah, I was home when that happened. She said that she heard the screams, and then immediately everyone in the building went outside. They saw this woman on the sidewalk, and then police got there. Here's what she told me. I heard it the night she fell because everybody came flying off his floor. And supposedly nobody saw anything. It happened right down here? It happened right here. Mm-hmm. It and, did. And people said, I didn't see anything. Yes. And they came flooding off of our floors to get out onto the streets. 
Yeah. We all heard it. It woke us all up. I have. A, I had a little dog at the time. He started going crazy. The whole street was roped off. And when I ran down, the police was holding the side door, and she was laying on the sidewalk. FBI had swarmed the ne- next day, was questioning us, and then Sean was like, did you talk to them? What did you say? And I said, look, Sean, I said, I was asleep. Well, I didn't do anything. What's this woman's name? Cynthia what? Yeah, and so that woman, uh, Cynthia, even told me that Sean Williams apparently threatened her after this, trying to tell her not to speak to the police. Uh, She told me that she did talk to the police anyway, but, of course, she was no doubt a little bit scared after that. Unbelievable. Well, yeah, I can imagine. The the fascinating part of your interview with Cynthia Bradford is that she was not surprised when she heard that Sean Williams had escaped from the transport van. What does she know about Sean Williams that the rest of us don't? Yeah, this was wild. She said that, you know, police would sometimes come to their building. Again, he had a reputation for throwing these big parties. Um, And she told me about how sometimes Sean Williams would try and get away from police. He would climb up into the air ducts or even the elevator shaft to hide from them. So she said she wasn't surprised that he was able to escape. She said this is somebody who she considers to be very smart. Take a listen. Do I think he could get out of cuffs? Yes, because he would crawl through the duct system. He would crawl through the elevator shaft. Why? Because that's how he would try to get away. Sean is very, he's, he's weird, but he's kind of got a mastermind. So do I think he was able to get out of cuffs? Yes. But do I think he paid people off? Absolutely. And I need to give Cynthia a lot of credit for even doing that interview with us because, you know, the more that we talked about this, she told us that, you know, she is scared. She's worried that he's still out there. And part of what worries her, she said, is that he is so smart, maybe a little awkward, but very smart. I, I can understand why uh, people would be scared, um, not just there, but all over eastern Tennessee. I'm not sure if you can still hear me, Brooke, but if you can, can you walk me through what you saw and what you um, learned when you were at the courthouse today? I think you were able to go to the Sally Port. That's where that uh, transit van was supposed to come in and deliver him. What, what, did, they, what did they say at the, at the courthouse? Yeah, I apologize. Sorry, we had that train coming through. Um, But yeah, we went to the federal courthouse. Um, It's just about an hour away from Johnson City. So that was over in uh, in Greenville. Um, And we looked at that secure entrance that you see right there on your screen. Um, And marshals had said that, you know, they took him in a transport van to the federal courthouse. Once they got there, that's when they noticed that a window in the van had been knocked out and Sean Williams was gone. I went across the street uh, from the courthouse. I talked to a couple of guys who have a shop over there. I was asking them about it, and they said, you know, they don't think he got out at the courthouse. They think it happened way before that, and they think he had help. Oh, man, this story just gets weirder and more complex. Brooke, great job. Amazing job on the ground. Thank you for that. Looking forward to your reports tomorrow as well. I want to bring in Mark Garagos right now. He is a high-profile criminal defense attorney, host of the podcast Reasonable Doubt with Adam Carolla. So, Garagos, I mean, you heard Brooke's reporting. You've heard the witnesses. You've 
heard about all of the digital evidence that the police have apparently uncovered from that uh, crime scene. 52 rapes, allegedly. How do you end up defending this guy once he is caught? Uh, you know, the first thing I would say, and I don't mean this cynically, but I tried a case in Greenville, Tennessee about six years ago, and I do not remember any parties or any uh, wild shenanigans. So uh, I'm a little surprised, if you will, because it seemed like a very uh, nice place with a very wonderful population. So having said that, how do you defend this? I will tell you that the... Um, the parties and the people who don't really remember what happened um, is defensible. The things that are obviously horrific, if true, are the tapes and obviously the tapes of those who are very young. If that is the case, uh, there's a reason why there's been a number of escapes and there's a reason why he's fleeing. And, uh, you know, the tapes and you know, all the other uh, uh, apparent evidence that they have uh, makes it a, a very hard case to defend. If it is, ultimately, if it turns out there isn't or aren't any tapes of w what's been reported and it's merely people who had to be reminded or told about something that happened that they didn't really remember, it's a whole different ballgame. Those are cases that are sure, notoriously yeah. hard yeah, to prosecute. You know what, Garagos? They used facial, facial recognition technology to uncover the identities of these victims. So they've got serious videotape and serious crimes or they would not have bothered to do a facial recognition effort to find these victims. I just want to let our viewers know what they're seeing in the middle of the screen between us. The woman who was on the swing in the Jerry Seinfeld-like garage, like a super fancy garage, she's not a victim, but she gave us that video to show us that party scene. Like these swings were in there and it was a part of his thing when he had party guests. They would party in that garage a lot and use those swings. And we've been asking viewers to watch carefully if they recognize that garage. It's very recognizable with the mural on the side and the swings in eastern Tennessee and Johnson City. You know, come forward to the police because you may be a victim and not know it. The other video, Garagos, was the fancy apartment. Does not look like a drug den where you should know you're going to get in trouble. This is a guy who you would be probably happy to have been invited to a party at a fancy place like this and never expect for a minute you're going to end up, you know, uh, a victim of a serial rapist. Why no indictment, though, on the 52 suspected rapes on tape? Well, I was actually going to respond when you said that they've gone to all of these efforts to get facial recognition, things of that nature. It begs the question of exactly what you just asked. If that was the case, how come there wasn't something? Why were there, Why did they, you don't even have to go to a, a grand jury to get an indictment? You could have filed the, the equivalent of a criminal complaint. Why wasn't that done? That leads me to believe that there's more to this story than we're hearing so far. And whether that's an inside job, whether that's somebody who's connected, or whether they just have problems with evidence, it's maybe just as simple as that. Well, it's interesting. Um, such a fascinating case. You'll have to come back and talk. It's not over. We're st we've still got lots more to come on this, so we're going to have you back to talk Obviously. more about it. Thanks, Mark. Obviously, the chase will be part of what you will be following. So, Oh, two escapes now. So, yeah, I think that's going to be part of the charging uh, you know, list against them as well when they do catch them. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley.
Before I go to uh, break, I want to tell you about some other video that we got our hands on. Um, you saw that fancy apartment and you saw the fancy um, place where the parties happened, the outside and the inside. Now I want to show you um, about what I think might be a rescue. Lots of women fell victim, right? It's on tape. Um, but I want to show you what might have been a rescue. The video you're about to see is, I need to give you some context. Uh, it's, it's Williams, it's Sean Williams standing outside of an elevator and the elevator door is open and there are two men and a, and a woman inside the elevator and they are very angry. Uh, the two men look very, very angry at Sean Williams and there's some fighting or arguing that's going on but I'm gonna let the video speak for itself. So take a look at this. Do not ever, I can't. So all we could really make out there was do not ever, and then the punch, and then a lot of yelling, um, and Sean Williams was punched, right? So I can tell you this, Stephen Moore is the man in the video, and he and a roommate had stopped by Sean's apartment for some drinks, and they had a female friend with them. When it was time to leave, Sean uh, was not allowing the woman to leave and had sort of pushed the boys, uh, the guys, out the door. But they grabbed her, and this uh, was the result of the moments after that happened. Apparently, Stephen Moore said he'd heard the rumors about uh, Sean Williams, and this is what happened. Tomorrow, you're going to hear a whole lot more and see a whole lot more um, about this moment and all the details that led up to it and what those people actually know about the woman and about uh, Sean Williams. That's tomorrow on the program, so make sure you stay tuned uh, tomorrow night, Friday night. Coming up... Never before heard details about what Caitlin Armstrong did after the murder of her romantic rival, Mo Wilson, including what she kept asking a police detective in the interrogation room and how a U.S. Marshal was able to track her in Costa Rica, even though she was buried under $6,000 worth of plastic surgery. It is a tale worthy of a spy novel, so get comfy. Got the details next. So it's day six if you're keeping score in the Caitlin Armstrong murder trial, and I'm keeping score. Because each day seems to be better than the last. And when I say better, I mean details that, wow, whenever we're like scraping around as reporters trying to find out stuff and people keep a lid on it or do a gag order and we go bananas, well, it all came out today. Really interesting stuff. It was like half cop show and half spy novel. Um, let me just start with the, the cop show part, because th this was, I mean, don't you always want to be a fly on the wall during an interrogation? I do, and now you can be, because the cop who was doing the interrogation of Caitlin Armstrong, her name's Katie Connor, um, she was on the stand, and so she told what it was like when they brought Caitlin Armstrong in for questioning. They brought her in in cuffs and sat her down, and, and what they did was they brought her in on something totally unrelated. It was an outstanding warrant for something called theft of services. Those are kind of misdemeanors, like a, you didn't pay a contractor or something. 
And then they brought her in and they took the cuffs off, gave her a glass of water, and then said, oh gosh, golly darn, wouldn't you know it, birth date on your misdemeanor warrant here uh, is wrong. So it's going to go away. You're not under arrest anymore. Uh, This whole theft of services business, your lucky day, sister. Um, But while you're here, (laughs) got some questions for you about something else. And that's when Caitlin, according to this detective, got a little more wise and uh, said, I, should I have a lawyer? And that's where my ears always perk up, right? Ooh, she's asking for a lawyer. That's, that's Miranda business. She was not read any Miranda rights. And before you say, well, ah, <laughs> no Miranda, you can't bring that into court. Yeah, you can, because she was not under arrest, they say. She was free to leave. They told her multiple times, doors open, you're totally not under arrest. You you can leave any moment. Just want to let you know, though, that boyfriend of yours, Colin Strickland's in the other room giving his story. So, you know, if you need to tell yours, this is a good time, which might have been enticing because Caitlin spent 30 minutes in there the whole time saying, maybe I should have a lawyer and am I under arrest? And Can I leave? Each time they said, yeah, you can leave. And no, you're not under arrest. And doors open, sis. But she talked. She said a few things like, uh, oh, I heard a cyclist died. Yeah, yeah, Caitlin, a cyclist died. But it's a bit more than that, the detective said. Um, She was a, a cyclist who went out with your boyfriend, detective told her. And, oh, the other thing is, Caitlin, your vehicle was actually seen um, near the crime scene. Those are what you call troubling facts. When she suggested that um, Armstrong was upset at the time of the murders and that she was in the area at the time of the murder, uh, Armstrong, according to this detective, is like nodding in the interrogation room, like nodding in agreement, which is also very weird because if you're trying to cover that up, you wouldn't maybe do that. And like I said, 30 minutes in, she's like, okay, that's enough, I'm leaving. And she was allowed to leave. And then this is where we get to spy novel. Uh, Because two days after she walked out of that interrogation room, she walked right out of the state. She got on a plane to New York City. And that's when the whole yoga mat stuff, like that's when we started seeing Caitlin with the flaming red mane uh, cruising through airports on her way, like to, you know, ditch town with the yoga mat on her back. And then the wanted posters came out, U.S. Marshals saying, have you seen this lady? So... Four days after the interrogation, she's now in Costa Rica. So two days, she's in New York. Hi, sis. That's where her sister lives. Got a passport I can borrow. These are my words. Um, Four days later, she's out of New York, and she's now down in Costa Rica. And while there, she cobbles together her $6,350, and she talks to a plastic surgeon um, who apparently had a silver package available for plastic surgery. This doctor's name is Jorge Badia, and Armstrong got rhinoplasty, nose job, and also a brow lift, which is, I could use that. It's called the silver package. It's over $6,000, and that is what Caitlin Armstrong definitively got according to the testimony today, because we've been hearing about it. But then today, it's like, that's, that's the stuff she got. Rhinoplasty and a brow lift. She also asked Dr. Badia, about getting filler in her lips and eyes and chin. Don't do it. I don't think it's a good idea ever. Honestly, it's not. Um, and then ask for a payment plan because maybe she didn't have that, all the extra money ready. 
She was in Costa Rica for six weeks until June 29th, and that is when a U.S. marshal saw her and recognized her. Which brings me to the question, was Dr. Vadia's bill worth it? Because <laughs> if the marshal recognized you after all that, what was the point? And that bill, I mean, bummer. Brianna Hollis is a reporter with News Nation affiliate um, KXAN. She was in the courtroom today, and she has this exquisite uh, color of the moment the marshals said they spotted Caitlin and they caught Caitlin. So Deputy Amir Perez helped local law enforcement in Costa Rica with Finding Armstrong. They went around and were interviewing service industry employees, trying to see if anyone knew where Armstrong was. It was through that they found out the hostel that Armstrong was staying at. So Perez, in plain clothes, then went to that hostel. He saw a man and a woman sitting outside. He thought the woman could be Armstrong, so he went up, got closer, and as he started talking to her further, he did identify her as Armstrong. Interesting point here, though. He said he identified her because of her eyes, even though she had a bandage on her nose and her hair was darker. From there, Perez then shared that information with local authorities who were able to ultimately arrest her. They also found out that she entered Costa Rica illegally by using a passport that wasn't her own. Note, later police found Armstrong's sister's passport in the belongings that she brought to Costa Rica. Perez says that on the trip back, Armstrong was quiet but polite and didn't cause him any issues. Ashley. Brianna Hollis, good info. I just wish I were there to see that, right? You're walking up to a lady with a bandage on her nose and her eyes are all swollen, but you can still recognize that it's her. And you don't even know her. You've just seen pictures. Wow. So upside here for Dr. Badia is $6,000 for a nose job and a brow lift. That's pretty cheap. Uh, downside for Dr. Badia, uh, didn't do the job. But then again, I'm sure she didn't tell Dr. Badia what she needed, what she really, really needed. Coming up next, uh, if there is one thing we hope for, it is to have dignity when we die. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be the goal of a family-run funeral home in the great state of Colorado because they are being accused of abusing nearly 200 corpses after their loved ones brought them there to do a dignified preparation for funerals. When the neighbors started complaining of an overwhelming smell and when the police came a-calling, the owners made a run for it. But what the police found stacked up in their warehouse made the deputies want to make a run for it. Wait till you hear the details and how they found those fugitives next. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This next story is very dark, and it's also sad, and it's also super weird. 
Um, is it really too much to ask for dignity, the same kind of dignity in death that we, that we get in life? Is it too much to ask for that? Because for a couple funeral home operators in Colorado, apparently so. The funeral home I'm talking about was called the Return to Nature Funeral Home. This is it. Not in its better days. Uh, it's south of Denver. And police right there are investigating the 190 corpses that they found there. And of course, you're supposed to find corpses at a funeral home, but not the way they did. They had to wear Tyvek to do their investigation. Um, some of those bodies had been there since 2019. It's 2023. And the neighbors apparently had called the police saying that there was terrible smell coming from that funeral home. And when the police called, uh, the owner said that they do taxidermy there, that that might be why the smell. So they, the police came calling like, and the owners had fled. I guess they knew what was coming. So they took off to Oklahoma and they were like on the run for a month in, in hiding. Okay. So let's go back to the police getting there and owners have run. What they found was just like a horror movie. In a warehouse at this funeral home, they found so many of these bodies didn't even have like a body bag or a casket. They were just piled on top of each other and were decomposing together in piles. The floor apparently was covered with bodily fluids and insects, as you can imagine. I can't even think about what the cops went through to investigate this. Only half of the people who were taken there by their loved ones have been identified. Loved ones had no idea because many of them got sand. Here are the ashes of your loved one. So they had no idea. As of uh, yesterday, there's been an arrest. And the two arrests are John and Carrie Halford, uh, seen in orange jumpsuits, uh, the way you should be seen when you're under arrest. They have a $2 million bond. They caught them, again, a month in hiding. Uh, Oklahoma is where they caught them. The charges are abuse of a corpse, theft, money laundering, and forgery. On top of that, families are going to sue and are already in the process. That's why Andrew Swan is here. He's an attorney in Colorado Springs. He's representing many of those families. Andrew, this is just so unbelievable. First, before I get to the, to the civil part of it, do you have any idea in Colorado, what kind of time you can face in prison for abuse of corpse, theft, money laundering, and forgery? Our understanding is that it could be several decades, but unfortunately it could be as little as probation in this case. How? How is it possible with that level of depravity that it could be probation? I'm, I'm guessing on the lower end it could be, but it, on this, in this kind of a case it wouldn't be. I, I hope you're right, and I'm, I'm optimistic that any criminal sanction is in the range of many years in prison as opposed to probation, but it is a possibility, unfortunately. So of the clients that you have, and we should keep in mind that the authorities are still going through the horrible task of getting through those piles and trying to identify remains that have been there for upwards of four years. Um, of the families that you represent and know of, how many of them received fake ashes, and, and what are some of the other stories they've told? 
Over the course of over 100 communications with family members, it appears that the great majority have received either sand or ground concrete in place of actual remains. Uh, of course, some didn't receive remains at all. Many haven't yet received confirmation that their loved ones were even affected. So when they didn't receive remains, was that because the funeral home said that they'd lowered them into the ground in a burial or the funeral home just was negligent and keeps giving excuses? Like, it just seems weird to wait a long time when you make a funeral plan. Both. Although a majority of these victims' families were told that their loved ones had been cremated when, in fact, they hadn't been, uh, some had been told that their loved ones had been buried Our understanding is that exhumations are in process to verify the Halfords' claim that they had, in fact, been buried. So there are funeral plots. We just don't know maybe what's what's in those um, those actual burial plots. So now about the lawsuits, Um, if you're representing these families and I'm assuming they want to sue the pants off this this uh, this company, these people, you can't get blood from a stone. And I don't know what kind of stone the, the Halfords are. Do you? Although our intention certainly is to try to make these families whole, our intention is not primarily about the money. It is to hold these people accountable. It is to tell the stories of these bereaved families. And ultimately, it's to seek change within Colorado's legal structure about the regulation and licensure of these funeral homes. I hope you prevail in that because I just assumed, I mean, silly me, I just assumed there was oversight that this could never happen. I mean, a warehouse with hundreds of bodies, you know, stacked without even a body bag. It's it's just it defies all logic. Andrew Swan, keep us posted on this. Thanks for being on tonight. Thank you for your coverage, Ashley. No, it's our pleasure. Um, Gosh, I hope they find resolution in that case. And we'll keep you posted because, again, they're only halfway through the IDs coming up. uh, He is without question the face of evil. But he himself is looking pretty rough these days. And you are about to see that for yourself. Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK serial killer, is living behind bars until he dies. This is him throughout the years. And if you need proof that life in prison has a way of changing a man, or should I say wearing him out, you need look no further than that last mugshot, because it's his most recent mugshot and it's fresh off the presses. His own daughter even told us about her latest visit to see him and that he is, quote, rotting to his core. It took him a minute to process who I was. He's lost like seven inches and he's in a wheelchair. He's pretty much rotting like to his core. Rotting is right, but wait until you see just how badly that is next. Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, is rotting away behind bars. And don't take it from me. That's what his own daughter said about him on this very program when she called in. Carrie Rawson had just been to visit him for the first time since he was jailed and had the shock of her life when she laid eyes upon him in prison after 18 years. Goodness, Ashley. Um, at first, like, we just had a reunion. I, I mean, I hadn't seen him in 18 years. He hadn't seen me. We had been cut off for two years. It, it had been letters all that time before that. So it, it took him a minute to process who I was. He's lost, like, seven inches, 
and he's in a wheelchair. He's pretty much rotting like to his core. And so he didn't even necessarily recognize me. So we, we had to have a family reunion. Uh, he came up with these theories and things, but then he, he gave me an alibi and I'm literally believing him, even though I know he's a pathological liar. And then I go meet out with my team and they're like, he just lied to you. And I was like, prove it to me. And they pulled up a calendar and proved it to me. And then I was like, okay, he's yours taking like frying because he's literally sitting there lying to his daughter that he hadn't seen in 18 years. When you see Dennis Rader's newest mugshot from prison, you're going to agree with Carrie Rawson's description of him. These are Dennis Rader's mugshots over the last 18 years, and his face is looking a little more aged and weathered as the years get longer. And now the state of Kansas has updated Rader's prison photo for the first time in more than a decade. Unrecognizable. There it is. 78 years old, shallow, sallow, messy, and pathetic. Almost looks like they woke him up in the middle of the night and snapped that shot. Didn't even bother about the bedhead. He was 60, way over there on the left when he went in. Arguably better quaffed. But living your life in a cage has a way of etching its mark on your face. And by the way, this coming January 15th will mark the 50th anniversary of Raider's first known murder. That was back in 1974. Sometimes it is just nice to be reminded that prison justice can be long and slow and painful and live up to what it's supposed to deliver, which is protection from us and retribution. In the words of Raider's own daughter, that is a man who is rotting to his core. We'll see you with a toe tag on you, Dennis Raider. Still to come, who would you turn to if a SWAT team came barreling through your door? If you answered Jesus, you're not the only one. A suspected murder accomplice hangs on tight to her Bible as a heat storm comes barreling straight for her. And we have all of the video, wild video, next. You know, there aren't many people you can turn to when you're wanted by the FBI. You can just ask Ms. Auburn Renee Moore of Decatur, Alabama about that. Uh, she's accused of being an accomplice to murder, robbery, and kidnapping, and that's serious stuff. That usually brings the SWAT team to your door, which is exactly what happened at her door. Um, but when that team came banging on the door, uh, she live-streamed all of it, and the only person left to turn to was the Lord. Allah, come on, please, Lord, be with us. It's just me and a little kid here right now. Please, Lord, be with us. Show us your hand. Show us your hand. Come out with your hands up. I'm healing. I'm healing. There's hands! Third people, third people. Do not move fast. Keep your hands up. Walk towards the front door. She's a child. Move. He's a child. Stand up and walk out here now. Get on your feet and move. Did not even drop that Bible. Um, again, murder, robbery, and kidnapping. So pretty serious stuff. There are a lot of people who find Jesus when they're behind bars, but Ms. Auburn seems to have covered that already. 
before she even goes in. Hey, uh, thank you so much for watching. As always, I love